0: Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson. I'm an assistant professor at the New York Institute of Technology here in Nanjing, China, and I'm the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Martin Joseph Ponce, who is an associate professor of English at Ohio State University. We will discuss his book, Beyond the Nation, Diasporic Filipino Literature. Hello, podcast listeners. My name is Christopher Patterson. I'm an assistant professor at the New York Institute of Technology here in Nanjing, China, and I'm the host of this podcast, New Books in Asian American Studies. Today, we are joined by Martin Joseph Ponce, who is an associate professor of English at Ohio State University. We will discuss his book, Beyond the Nation, Diasporic Filipino Literature and Queer Reading, which was published by NYU Press in January of 2012. Beyond the Nation traces the roots of Filipino literature to examine how it was shaped by forces of colonialism, imperialism, and migration. Rather than focusing on race and nation as main categories of analysis, Ponce uses a queer diasporic reading to consider the multiple audiences for Filipino literature. In doing so, he explores alternatives to the nation as the basis for an imagined community and focuses instead on sexual politics and the transpacific tactics of reading. Joe, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Chris. Could you begin the interview by telling us a bit about uh, what brought you to study Philippine literature written in English?
1: Sure. The um, origin story that I've come to tell is one that's probably as mythic as anything else, Um, but it begins in graduate school. Um, The latter part of my graduate program, I focused almost entirely on African American literature of the 20th century. And um, that persisted all the way through my candidacy exams. And one of the figures that I focused a great deal on was Langston Hughes. Um, And for those people who are familiar with Langston Hughes, one of his more famous essays from the 1920s um, is called The Negro Artist in the Racial Mountain. And he begins that essay by referring to what he calls a Negro poet um, who wants to be understood and read and identify as just a poet, not a Negro poet. Um, and he goes on to lament the fact that this person will never be a great poet because he's running away spiritually from his race. Um, for whatever reason, autobiographical reason that I won't get into, um, that phrase stuck with me for quite a while. And um, in my program, after the candidacy exam, we had two weeks to write a dissertation proposal. Um, And this was to prevent people from um, languishing in that indeterminate um, time frame between candidacy and dissertation. And in that two weeks, I kind of did an about-face and said, I'm going to write about Filipino-American literature, even though I hadn't studied it at all. Um, And my advisor was a good sport about it, and he said, okay, sure. Um and the reason was less that I felt somehow inauthentic or um ill-equipped to study and teach African American literature. It was more that I was worried about um and no one ever called me out on this and they didn't mm-hmm. have to, right. Um, but that I was, you know, not studying who I am, right? Or quote unquote my people. <laughs> um and this was, you know, one of these soul-searching moments in grad school that I suppose lots of people go through. Um, but that's kind of how it started. And uh, and then it just went from there, um, and I ended up writing a dissertation on, on Filipino-American literature and tried to read it in a transnational
0: context. Hmm. That's really fascinating, actually. I I feel like I know a lot of people who started doing African-American literature and then moved over to study Asian American or you know kind of whatever their particular background is and I wonder if so you feel that that poem might have inspired you to to kind of take the reins on uh, your own background yeah
1: um i think i think that story is actually more common um, than we might think i don't know how many universities actually have um Well, I mean, there are are a lot of universities that have Asian-American studies programs. Um, I don't know how many PhD programs there are. Um, And, you know, because we're kind of scattered all over the place, I think people find their way into the field through lots of different circuitous routes, and African-American studies being a lot more um, visible and um, solid institutionally becomes one of those routes, um, and I think a lot of people then turn to, they don't kind of jettison it. I think a lot of people continue to teach in the field and um, some people focus on it in terms of comparative race studies or Afro-Asian studies and things like that.
0: <laughs> so yeah, it's an interesting story. <laughs> I think this opens up to the book quite well, actually. What what I was, As I was reading, I was wondering how you compare this kind of archive, the Philippine Anglophone literature, how you compare that to, say, um, I was going to ask Chinese American literature, but why not African American literature? Like, how did what did you think of it after studying mostly afam and then coming to to this archive?
1: Right. So that's actually a really good question because it was always in the back of my mind. Um, you know, the project was really at the most basic level a kind of literary history, mm-hmm. and even if I didn't know what the archive looked like, and kind of still don't entirely. Um, whatever I was reading was certainly not fitting into the kind of models that I'd come to expect from reading African-American literary studies. Mm. Um, and that had to do with a sort of um, uh, narration of literary history from slave narratives through Post-reconstruction, to the Harlem Renaissance, in the mid-century, and the Black Arts Movement, and so on. So there was no like obvious periodization. There was no um, sense that they were really referring to each other a whole lot. Which I got the sense that um, you know Black cultural producers were doing, and um, in dialogue with each other, both within the U.S. and outside. Um, and so it was really befuddling actually to to read some of this work and think there's no way I can shape this into any kind of story. Um, it's just not gonna work. Uh, at least in, in terms of the, the kind of models and um, frames of reference that I had already been
0: thinking about. That does that seem apparent in the first uh, in the introduction of your book when you you, you, said, you talk a bit about how Filipino uh, Anglophone literature has this kind of, you call it wild heterogeneity, and and that it also just seems very peculiar when you approach it. Uh, is this why you call it like wild heterogeneous or uh, is it mostly because there's no like self-reference system or the, cause they seem to also, they definitely seem to be reading each other and they seem to have read each other.
1: Yeah. Some of them certainly do. Um, and they do, you know, there are moments, especially in correspondence and things like that and essays where they um, reference each other. Um, mostly I meant that there was no core. I mean, there was no thematic core mm-hmm. um, and, Know, to reference the black literary tradition, slave narratives are kind of crucial to the formation of um, the literate arts, and so obviously historical experiences of slavery and the passage and um, Jim Crow and things like that were so prominent um, that I thought, well, surely we'll find analogous things about U.S. colonialism, the philippine american war, Um, And yes, Carlos Belosan is obviously the figure that people turn to as the documentarian of the first wave of Filipino migrants, um, male migrants in the U.S., and that's true. Um, But someone like Jose Garcia Villa certainly doesn't do that work. Um, And even, so there was a difference, I should also point out, between what I was thinking of as Filipino literature in the United States, folks who migrated here, published here, um, and Philippine literature in English, which actually does have, in retrospect, um, a critical tradition built around it. Um, people have written surveys and literary histories that sort of periodize it in particular moments in accordance with Philippine social history. Um, and so so when I talk about the heterogeneity of it, which is actually, I think, a phrase that I borrow from Serena C., um, I kind of mean it in the U.S. context, um, so that I don't mean to say that there is no such thing as a a national tradition of Philippine literature in English in the Philippines. I think there is, and people have constructed that. Mm. Um, And when you move over to these shores, it looks very, at least to me, um, internally differentiated and discrepancy.
0: You you also talk about how this Filipino literature has been met with very little critical attention, at least from the United States. Um, and do you, do you feel like this the heterogeneity of it is part of the reason why, or, or do you think this heterogeneity also reflects, I, I guess, the differences in, in the nation itself?
1: I think it's both, yeah. Um, the critical recognition that it's been accorded tends to focus on specific authors, so mm-hmm. Carlos Bulosan, again, and Jessica Hagedorn, um, in the post-colonial period, and Asian-Americanist scholars, ethnic studies scholars, uh, post-colonial studies scholars, um, feminist and queer, they have looked at those two. Um, but they tend not to be framed within any kind of tradition of Filipino literature in the U.S. or in relationship to Philippine literature in English. Um, and so that was, that was really what I meant by that. There was also a it was also, it comes out of a disciplinary question. Mm. Um, Filipino studies in the U.S. really kind of took off in during the period when I was doing this research. So there was a lot of great work being published by ethnic studies scholars and social science scholars, um, anthropologists, um, and, and ethnographers that was really fascinating and I learned a ton from. But There were fewer, particularly at the time, um, folks looking at literary production. Um, Things have changed, obviously, um, but that was kind of where I fit this project in relationship to that larger interdisciplinary project of Filipino studies.
0: So does this this heterogeneity, I don't want to stress it too much, but uh, does it also reflect, I guess, the, the the authors that you're talking about, like I mean, they all speak and can write English. Um, and I was also interested, you call them diasporic, or you call them anglophone rather than diasporic. Or, uh, why make this distinction? Why kind of settle on the term anglophone? I always have to get into conversations with, uh, dis- I guess, the friendly discussions <laughs> whenever I use the term anglophone because it's so invested with this kind of colonial uh, spirit, I suppose, but it, it does seem usual, normal in like in Philippine studies to use anglophone. So why rely on this term?
1: Right. So this was a way to, well, first of all, mark the linguistic boundaries of the archive that I was looking at. Um, I wasn't taking up literature in other Philippine languages, um, but it was also a way to make the diasporic relationship between the two countries um, more visible or Audible, I guess, um, because I I wanted not to use, if I could help it, Filipino American literature as a category, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. because of all of its U.S. ethnic-based implications. And so to talk about Anglophone diasporic Filipino literature was a way to keep that frame and that purview in relationship to what was going on in the Philippines open. And, you know, beyond that, lots of people have written about um, the status of English in the Philippines and um, the colonial and post-colonial periods, and and it was very informative for me to read those debates. But um, considering the fact that I was really looking at U.S.-based writers, um, and Anglophone was again just a way to signal its its relationship to Philippine literature and English.
0: So I, I don't want to skip over one of the uh, core arguments of your book, which is that these anglophone writers were often writing to to multiple audiences at the same time, and had to come mm-hmm. up with kind of strategies on how to do this. Uh, can you tell us about like how and why they addressed these multiple publics at the same time? Yeah. So
1: this was a a way to for me at least to address the question of the politics of representation, mm-hmm. i guess at the most basic level and you know, I spent actually a lot of um, early drafts writing fuming about um, identity politics, which I suppose lots of people do and um, you know i thought this isn't this isn't the most um Generative way to get at some of the questions that, at least, that were being raised by the literature to me, and so I thought, yes, we could talk about multiple identities being represented and critiqued and so on in the literature, but what about thinking of the of diaspora as a way as a as a way to frame and understand um, transnational addresses. Um, and modes of reception, because then that would allow us to then to read the critical discourse that happens around the literature as well as the rhetorical moves within the literature um, as being more complex than simply addressing a U.S. audience that, you know, either you want to criticize for being racist or sexist or so on, or you want to to force um, to be included in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and I also wanted the, the question about address to be directly connected to the question of, of multiplicity and multivalency, because I didn't think that, because I was, as I was reading through the literature, it seemed to me that you could be um, aiming your critique of one thing in one direction and aiming your critique of another thing in another direction. Um, and the politics of those kinds of multivalencies were not obvious or at least were not evident if you had just a single um,
0: national framework in in front of your, your perception. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting way to think about, you know, the author and, and the author function of a text, how, uh, yeah, they might appear as like fundamentally some kind of identity to some public that they're addressing. And then. To another public, they might appear completely different, um, and that the author is also could also be aware that this is happening, and you know, employing this strategically. Uh, it seemed like like that, that argument from, in the book was very crucial to to like setting off the entire tone of the book. Let me uh, ask you a bit more about your method of reading before we get into the chapters. Uh, um, you call it queer diasporic reading. Uh, how do we? Yes. So why don't we start with like how we usually read ethnic literature or how we would usually approach uh, the, this archive? Uh, what do you think is I guess wrong with the way we would usually read it, and then how does queer diasporic reading uh, change that?
1: Right. Um, so this goes back to the early question about how do you write a history of Filipino American literature mm-hmm. if we were to call it that? Um, and so I think that the usual um, narrative goes something like, especially if you're talking about racial minorities in the U.S., here's the way that they've been represented by the dominant discourse, mm. stereotyped, denigrated, inferiorized. And then here's the body of work that has to grapple with those images um, and, and you know, represent um, the collective in alternative, more positive, more complex ways. And if you start with the theme of invisibility as the affliction of Filipinos in the U.S., well, then you don't have that negative core, right? You don't have the, the colonial racial discourse that says you are savage and inferior and so on. Of course, that does exist in the Philippines. Discuss that. Um, but at least in the U.S., it seemed like um, that was less the case. Mm. Um, and so the the kind of strategy of reading it as ethnic and then trying to remake those images um, would seem to be not working. I mean, it does work, of course, for some writers, but not for others. Um, And it also privileges um, the dominant as constructing the parameters for the politics of representation. Um, So then how does a queer diasporic reading practice and intervene in that, as we talked about a little bit before, the, the diasporic part um, sort of dislodges the hegemony of U.S. as the primary frame of reference and um, public that you're speaking to um, and shows its relationship to, what happen, what, to what's happening in the Philippines. Um, and the queer part was, um, as you mentioned in the little intro, was a way to think complexly about racial construction um, and its intersections with gender and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was also a way to think about the question of desire, um, at least for me, in a way that wasn't about trying to, you know, read everything through a lens of sexual identity, but more mm-hmm. a way to think differently about collectivity and intimacy and sort of romantic relationships.
0: Why don't, why don't we just go through that that... Uh, that claim about queer, because just because I'm, you know, this is still kind of a, a locked within the scholarly conversation about how queer you know, there's still some uh, people who see queer as having nothing to do with empire and colonialism, so why I guess, why focus on sexuality, gender and eroticism um, as a makes the Philippines queer or structurally queer to, in comparison to the United States um, as a former colony, like what do those two things have to do with each other? Right.
1: So I'll start with a short anecdote about when I was trying to, um, propose the book project, Uh, a couple, a couple of editors actually said to me when I kind of the first versions of what I thought I was writing, (laughs) um, was that they said, I get the diaspora part. I don't get the queer part. Um, and even, one even went so far as to say, you know, the the project, if it's about, as, as this editor put it, um, diasporic Filipino identities, mm. which of course it is not, but, um, if, you know, if, you know, that sounds interesting, you put queer in the project and then all of a sudden becomes a much smaller book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Well, I have an uphill battle. Um. So well, the main justification actually happens in the first chapter on Maximo Calao, and that's kind of got added into that into the project and the dissertation.
0: I didn't even know really him before. Right, well, um, so, let's just get to the first chapter then. Uh, to, yeah. Tell us about tell us about that about Calao, and uh, he doesn't get read as much as the other uh, people you you talk about, but he does get read. At least a bit uh, from scholars and such. So, can you tell us about him and uh, I guess how that led to uh, the, f- the generation of the word queer as part of your uh, analysis? Yes, sure. I should say from, this, from the outset, um,
1: if there's a chapter that catalyzed the whole project, it's really the one on Jose Garcia Villa. But mm-hmm. we can come back to that in a moment. Um, the Kalau chapter was a way to historically ground the idea that, um, like many other nationalisms under colonialism or in the post-colonial period, um, it's underpinned by tropes of gender and sexual normativity and particularly um, the family. So the nation is family. Um, and so those kinds of heterosexual reproductive um, ideologies entirely suffuse what um, is meant by a national collectivity. Um, in the Philippines, I quote, uh, Vicente Rafael explicitly on this when he discusses the, um, this, the illustrators under Spanish colonialism, um, having this elaborate familial metaphor, um, story to talk about replacing mother Spain with mother Philippines. the the nationalists become both the sons and the lovers to the nation. Um, So as you can see, the kind of romance um, story becomes very explicit. Um, And I thought that that was something that was also going on in uh, Max McCallough's novel, um, The Filipino Rebel, which he describes as uh, a romance itself. Um, And that for me then Became a way to discuss, in literary terms, not just in historical terms, um, the predominance of this uh, metaphor of Asian family.
0: Okay, so this is kind of so the the queer part comes in, I suppose, as the queer reading of this romance. Is that right? Like that it somehow dislodges the, the, the effect of colonialism in this case, as so Clow is writing uh, in English and, and is kind of encouraging Filipinos to be educated in English. Uh, so how does the queer reading then kind of approach his texts?
1: Right. So the, the queer part becomes visible when Calao is situated next to Jose Garcia Villar, who, who gets his literary career started at about the same time that Callao uh, publishes the novel, um, and is completely um, different in terms of his gender and sexual politics, at least in his literature. So the, the queer part had to do with, um, it was building on feminist and um, queer post-colonial critiques of nationalism that are built on kind of naturalized heterosexuality. Hmm. And so when when Kahlo writes the novel and he's explicitly trying to Um, revitalized a sense of nationalist feeling that he thought had been waning since the early days of the revolution of 1898, Um, that kind of sentiment of romance is really operating through um, the story of the romance between Juanito and Josefa. And then the very end, when he um, kind of switches rhetorical gears and addresses the reader directly and says... They have a son. I'm not going to name him. He's anonymous. He could be anywhere. That's really the kind of future promise of the nation. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of future promise, as we know, is obviously built in a kind of heterosexual um, reproductive futurity, as contemporary queer theorists would call it. Um, And it seemed to me that that was something worth pointing out and denaturalizing, um, because as subsequent um, gay and queer study scholars in both the Philippines and the U.S. would say, um, that leaves out a whole bunch of people mm-hmm. um, who don't fit into that, that kind of imagined community.
0: So let, let's get to where you compare him then to uh, Jose Garcia Villa's work. Uh, he's often read, as, a, and I was taught his work, as a, a modernist who's unconcerned with politics, right? more concerned with art and style. Uh, but you read him in a very different way. So can you tell us about, about him, how he compares... Uh, and how you read his poetry?
1: Sure. I read his poetry um, through the lens of his earlier fiction, and in conjunction with his critical essays that he was writing during the 19, late 20s and early and throughout the 30s. Um, because I, I didn't know him when I first started the project. Um, I think, like many people, he just wasn't um, on my radar. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so it was, you know, in other words, I just started reading his work cold and had no idea what was going on for the most part. <laughs> um, and, you know, thematically, this seemed almost nothing to do, at least the poetry seemed nothing to do with Filipinos or ethnicity or race or anything. Um, and it wasn't until I read Footnote to Youth that I thought, wow, this is really interesting stuff. In particular, the autobiographical stories, the numbered paragraphs, and then the kind of frank, candid homoeroticism of them seemed um, astonishing to me. I mean, they were published in 1931 and 32, um, originally in mimeographed form when he was editing a, 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 a small journal called Clay um, as a student in the University of New Mexico. And so on the one hand, I was like, wow, he kind of self-published these things. And so maybe that's why they're so um, candid about the the homoerotics. Um, But then they also ended up in the the Scribner's version of Footnote to Use the Collection. Um, So because the stories are at least thematically um, apparent about at least in the autobiographical stories about migration and loss and falling in love with uh, his um, some of his college friends, um, that seemed to me a way to then think about what was happening in the later poetry. And my sense was that the shift from short story, even though they were very interested in interiority, what he called spiritual experience, um, to the later poetry, which was much more abstract and metaphysical, um, you know, I thought was maybe an implicit response to the fact that, um, the politics of sexuality in the U.S. were not accommodating to him. Um, and, and he had to turn to this kind of Christian metaphysical iconography to to re um orient some of those questions about desire and eroticism that that run throughout all of this work. Right?
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. Uh so yeah, he definitely seems <laughs> very different uh, from Kalau in that respect. Uh let's go to your your third chapter which is about uh on Bulosan, so someone that every uh, good Filipinos supposed to be familiar with, good Filipino-American. <laughs> um, but you deal with a, a book that I hadn't actually read before I, I read your book, uh, The Cry and the Dedication, which is about the Huck Rebellion from the viewpoint of a Filipino radical uh, living in the United States. Uh, I was surprised by this novel. and uh, So tell us about this how and how Bulusan then fits into your project.
1: Right, so... <laughs> um, Since he is the kind of canonical mid-century figure, or even pre-war mid-century Filipino-American figure, I knew I had to deal with his work, Mm -hmm. Um, even though when you think queer diaspora, you don't necessarily think of (laughs) Carlos Borosan. Um, You know, kind of working class, not exactly masculinist, but not exactly the most queer figure you uh, might imagine. Um, And so I had to kind of read against the grain and make myself get interested in a corpus that was not at the beginning, certainly um, one of the most compelling um, corpuses for me to to deal with. Um, So I'd actually written uh, an earlier piece on America's in the Heart, trying to argue its transnational connections to Philippine literature and English. Um, but it didn't deal with the gender and sexual politics, which a lot of people had already talked about, mm-hmm. particularly in terms of um, his critique of anti-miscegenation, um, the, the so-called idealization of white women in that novel, and um, the vilification of other women getting in the way of fraternal bonds and things like that. Um, the the novel, um, The Crime the, De- the Dedication, was a manuscript that apparently um, the editor, Lee um, found in his papers. Um, I don't know if this was before or after they were collected in Seattle at the University of Washington. Um, but, you know, I, I went to the papers to, to see for myself that it's actually there. And, and it is, and it is pretty much what we have now from Temple University Press. Um, but I think the main reason that a lot of people, you kind of, well, it wasn't published until 1995, first yeah. of all. Um, but, you know, it's entirely set in the Philippines, Um, Right after the war, the Hope Rebellion was probably the most prominent mid-century peasant rebellion, armed rebellion. It started in the 1930s and was on, and um, they fought against the Japanese as a guerrilla um, uh, unit. Um, They got in a lot of trouble with the, once the Americans came, and particularly the onset of the Cold War as being communist, and so... Um, so it was really interesting to me that Bulosan was taking up this this um, social formation um, and political activism in the Philippines because I mean I don't know I mean it seemed far away. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously sympathetic to his own politics, but so um, some of the papers in in Seattle actually. Um, showed the connections. There was reporting about the Hook Rebellion. Obviously, a lot of it is anti-communist, at least from the mainstream U.S. press. Um, So I thought it was really interesting that he gave a really sympathetic rendering of it. Um, And then, in sort of imaginative terms, it's tempting to read it as his symbolic homecoming, Mm -hmm. um, because that's what each of the characters do. They go back to, to their original hometowns, to spread the kind of ideological message of um, constructing an international, you know, community of workers hmm. against the the repressive anti-communist political government, as well as its collusion with the U.S. military.
0: Yeah, it seems it seems starkly political <laughs> and uh, yeah. almost you know dangerous reading about it, like oh this is. Uh, I wonder what it would have been like if it had been published in his own time.
1: Right. Um, some people have actually written, I think, about his, um, about how he was being watched by um, the FBI
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, uh, and other um, US surveillance forces. Um, but the gender and sexual politics of that novel are completely bizarre. Um, and so that was, of course, what I gravitated toward, because there's one, there's only one female character, in it. she's one of the like, really, um fighters in this unit. And um, the story is that they have to meet up with these two returned Filipino expatriates in the U.S., or rather, one um, in Manila, and receive aid and assistance for their cause. Um, but in order to properly identify him, so- Someone has to sleep with him. Because oh, right. oh, while he was in the US, um, he was uh, brutalized by vigilantes and his um, testicles were crushed. Um, so, so, this is supposedly the way that you identify uh, the, the returnee um, so that they don't put somebody else in his place. Hmm. And um, the, the manuscript stops. Um, whether apparently Wilson didn't finish it, so we never actually get to see that that moment. <laughs> um,
0: just, we just have the
1: tension and the buildup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, it was it was very very peculiar. But then then I sort of read that ending as well. Even if they do get together, even if this is a way to suture kind of allegorically, the female guerrilla fighter grounded in the peasant. Rebellion of the Philippines with the Filipino-American expatriate who returns. I mean, you can hear the sort of um, mm. resonances of, of exile and return, and narrative of diaspora, um, this is where we belong, this is where the real struggle is, that kind of thing. Um, and being put together through heterosexuality, um, unlike Maximo Callao's novel, The Ending of That, it's not procreative, but couldn't be. Um, so whatever... we whatever future is built upon that would be entirely open. It wouldn't necessarily be about rebuilding a family in the kind of normative way that um, nationalisms come to um, depend on.
0: That's really interesting uh, that you kind of take these liberties (laughs) with reimagining this ending as, uh, you know, what if it wasn't (laughs) what we all think it would probably be, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I of these in that chapter. Yeah. I, um, so you, you focus on the next chapter, and this is the other really big name, right? There's uh, Jessica Hagedorn. Uh, but Dog Eaters, of course, seems a bit uh, friendlier to the kind of the reading practice that you're developing. Uh, but you focus particularly on Joey Sands, who's named after a casino and the, the product of a Filipino sex worker and an African American GI. Uh, tell us about Joey Sands. He's He seems like the, a pivotal character um, in all of Filipino-American literature. So tell us about this figure, how he illustrates uh, the queer diasporic reading practice.
1: Right. So it turns out that in that chapter, and I discuss a little bit of Dog Eaters in the following chapter as well, because it's also a natural law novel. Um, mm. I, I do focus on Joey Sands as a Mixed race, his father was African-American G.I. in the Philippines, and his mother was a Filipino prostitute who then committed suicide. And he's raised by this figure named Uncle, who's basically a kind of um, play on the Oliver Twist story um, with Fagin. So he kind of leads these boys around to popping and things like that. And eventually, um, Joey... Into a sex worker and has a heroin addiction, um, but he's also the kind of survival survivor rather, um, and he has street smarts, and so he's the, he's the opposite of a kind of victimized, um, impoverished, half black um, you know, figure forced into into um, the sex trade. Um, and for me, what was interesting about the novel is not only that. Kind of explicitly discusses the emergence of the sort of um, underground sexual um, tourism that took place under the Marcos regime in Manila. Um, but also that he ends up at the end with the ex-beauty queen, um, Daisy, in the mountains, away from the urban center, and so on. And people have written very well, I think, about the difference between those two spaces. Um, obviously, this is a different kind of collectivity, this sort of guerrilla radical formation that happens in the mountains in the jungle. Um, again, that's not the nation, that's some other kind of collectivity. Um, I'm actually sort of working on a separate essay about dog eaters, as if we need another one. Um <laughs> That tries to historicize his blackness
2: mm.
1: and read his blackness in relationship and through the kind of formal characteristics of the novel, which are um, very fragmented and um, fractured, and trying to understand well, even though it's not a kind of historical realist novel, who, who would his father have been and when? And how does that? Um, what does that tell us about um, U.S. militarization in Southeast Asia and the Pacific? Um, and then how is his racialization related to questions of indigeneity in the Philippines as well as, well as in the U.S.? Um, because she has these snippets of this 19th-century French um, explorer who refers to Negritos, and so there's a kind of Resonance of blackness across the novel and across colonial periods, and um, that I think is interesting. And um, for all of the scholarship about the novel, you know, his his biraciality is often referenced, but it's not
0: um, um,
1: historicized or theorized to the extent that it might be. Mm.
0: The, I mean, speaking of lang- like language and snippets that are really hard to understand. The the, the next series of novels you consider, uh, I'm more familiar with Limburg's Rolling the R's, but you also talk about, uh, The Umbrella Country, which, uh, I think I read for my exams a long time ago, it was, it was, uh, that was quite an interesting text as well, uh, all published in the, like the late 90s, right, Uh, Umbrella Country, uh, Rolling the R's, 95, and then Letters to Montgomery Clift in 2002, uh, and yes. you seem to come with a, a, this seems to be, actually have a kind of core to it, these three novels. Or they seem to form a kind of genre that uh, I don't know. I that I, I guess you could call it Filipino gay writing. Would that be an accurate description? Or what would you What do you hope to say about these three novels? Kind of pairing them all together.
1: The first point is that they're all critically engaged with martial law, and that's how they ended up together, and that's how they ended up it. because there's a surprisingly, at least to me, um, abundant amount of creative work by I will just collectively call them queer Filipino um fists in the US, in um poetry and drama and visual arts and, and every and, and all kinds of things. So um so that has yet to be even sort of to me acknowledged and and read as a as a as a moment, I think, um, in Philippine-American cultural production. Um, So the the focus on those three in particular was all about martial law, that's what connects them. And they're also set in the 70s and 80s in the Philippines as well, in the arts, um, and in this case, also in the US. Um, So the question of nominalization always comes up in terms of sexual identity categories. And um, lots of people have debated about whether you can use uh, terms that are derived from Euro-American Western um, politics of sexuality to describe so-called non-Western um, senses of self and in cultural practice. Um, so I use the term queer in a more theoretical sense in order to. Just kind of broadly encompass um, the many kind of gender and sexual non-activities that are going on in the books, um, and tend to avoid the term gay just, um except insofar as they use it themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's, there's no there's no pure answer. I think um, these terms are always, in some ways, questionable and problematic, and they're never going kind to of capture the reference of um, sexuality that they
0: pur- pur- purportedly um, represent. The, the, I, I guess the astonishing part for me of these novels, is like, there's a lot of Filipino-American uh, and Filipino literature. I, I should stop using those terms, too. <laughs> there's a lot of transnational diasporic Filipino literature that's also about uh, the Marcos years and the dictatorship. Uh, but these they also yeah. have in common that they're... Um, at least the umbrella country along the R's center on uh, uh, queer main characters, queer protagonists. So, uh, how do those? I, I guess this is kind of returning to this uh, empire and queer question. Like, how does how does that lens kind of um, shape uh, Marshall but differently?
1: Right. So, with the umbrella country, one of the more striking things to me about that novel is um, how closely it links. Um The impoverishment that took place during the Marcos years with the kind of brutal reassertion of masculinity mm. uh, at least through the, its portrayal of this particular family in a neighborhood in, in Manila um, and and it was really I and mean, I guess this isn't an, an unusual kind of correlation to make that um, you know, Unemployed or underemployed um, men turn to other ways, violent ways, to assert reassert um, their patriarchal authority. Um, but it was explicit there, and then, then not only that, um, but also that then these queer sons um, happen to find ways to survive that and to even um, uh, find expression for their their um, same-sex desires. Um, so the other kind of surprising thing to me about these texts is that they all feature youth. Mm-hmm. Um, these are young characters with um, rather <laughs> adult desires. No. Um, lots of people have talked about child sexuality, so I'm not going to discount it mm-hmm. um, as an illusion. Of course, it's not. But, um, but it is, to me, a kind of risk to... To foreground that so emphatically. Um, and in in Pino's novel, it's much more kind of um, solemn and difficult and painful. Um, but in Lindmarks,
0: it's you know, exuberant and hilarious for the most part.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Do, do you feel like that reflects my, maybe the different context? Like Lindmarks, I guess he, he's from the Philippines, right? But writing um, in Hawaii and then Umbrella Country seems. Well I guess no, you get plenty of exuberant <laughs> figures of uh, gay young men in philippine literature so uh but it, it's also, <laughs> yeah. it also seems like these figures might be more uh familiar in, in uh the philippines as as opposed, and maybe hawaii as opposed to like uh the mainland US where i guess if you you know if you had these young whether they were solemn or exuberant uh young uh or children right, with these desires it might be a little less uh less familiar maybe
1: <laughs> yeah i think so although um the umbrella country was you know published by a mainstream new york press um Valentine, and i guess i mean i guess it, it depends on kind of what context you're thinking about if you're thinking about just gay literary publishing in the united states yeah I'm, can guess, I haven't read a ton of it, but my guess is that it covers all all kinds of topics and ages. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is interesting that to me, um, Noel, a novel, Letters to Montgomery Clift, Mm -hmm. um, he does grow up. Mm -hmm. um, And he grows into a young adulthood. And it it came across to me as um, surprisingly uneventful. The sort of the the sexual coming-of-age story, whereas the traumatic story was all about the effects of martial law and his his mother sending him to the U.S. Mm -hmm. away from his parents. Um, So that one seemed to follow a more um, developmental trajectory, even if it temporarily folds back in time as well.
0: So let's get to uh, your last chapter and epilogue, which both seem to... uh consider novels uh, written uh, looking at more contemporary Filipino and Filipina uh, literature. Uh, Let's see, you look at uh, Evelina Galang, uh, uh, Rizal, and then your, um, your last, your epilogue focuses on uh, your apostol. So can you explain a bit about how you see the growth of, of this literature and uh, the politics of queer reading that kind of come with it?
1: Sure. I added that chapter on, second-generation 1.5 second-generation Filipino-American, writer, kind of for, well, for personal reasons, just because I really like that work, mm-hmm. um, but also kind of almost polemical reasons. <laughs> um, I knew I needed to address Filipino-Americans sort of situated in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are not immigrant writers. And, in fact, all of the writers that I talk about besides them um, are immigrant writers, or more or less however you want to define that. And, you know, I thought some people have said, well, diaspora really only applies to the first generation. Mm. Uh, And after that, you know, the more they, the second, third, fourth generation gets settled within their um, country of arrival, the less um, ties they have to the place of origin. And, you know, there's a certain amount of truth to that. I didn't want to say, though, that Filipino American literature has nothing to do with the Philippines. And that was the kind of main emphasis for that chapter was to say, um, to think about how it imagines the Philippines. Mm. Um, and the, the kind of ethnographic scholarship that goes along in with that chapter that kind of frames um, the literary readings was to me a little bit too. Um, optimistic about how it it was imagined in the Philippines as a kind of repository for cultural identity and history and knowledge and authenticity that could then be mobilized to um, counter racism in the United States or um, lack of recognition. And I thought, well, it's interesting that um, both American Sun and her wild American self have these transnational valences, but they're not about reclaiming and recovering a homeland that they can then, you know, um, connect themselves with. They're really the site of discipline, as I call Mm -hmm. it. Um, And I think this is actually kind of an (laughs) in-joke to many Filipino-American Americans who were born and or raised here, which is the threat of sending you to the Philippines Mm -hmm. to to shape up, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I know I have family friends who to whom this has happened. Um, and so it's the very opposite of saying this is a cultural resource. It means I will send you to strict Catholic school and, and, and mend you of your your wild American ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that. And then the the parts on Patrick Rosal and um, Barbara Jane Reyes, first of all, I wanted to make sure that I included some poetry in that chapter because that's really one of the sites where Filipino-American literature has really taken off, and they've been very good about supporting each other and putting on readings and forming kundiman and all the rest of it. Um, and But what I was really interested about those two poets in particular is that they do a kind of cross-culturality um, in their, their poetic approaches that was, um, again, not about trying to solidify a sort of U.S.-based Filipino-American cultural nationalism. It was really looking outside whether in terms of hip-hop poetics for Rosal or in terms of this connection between um, Vietnam and the Philippines as far as the U.S. empire goes um, with
0: Reyes. Finally, uh, is there anything uh, that you have to say? So I've seen you at the Asian American, uh, Association of Asian American uh, Studies Conference a couple times, and you always give fascinating talks, sometimes polemical talks, so I'm just curious if you have anything to say about <laughs> The state of Asian American literature or Asian American Studies now, or uh, what impact do you hope for your text to have down the road
1: um, for this book, I actually think of it as a quite specific and um, rather modest book as far as its archive and reach goes. I mean I hope people get something out of it, but i don't have a i don't have a sense that this is going to be a you know, big giant intervention in the field. It really wasn't meant to be that. My interlocutors are almost all Filipino studies scholars and historians. Um, As far as the Asian-American literature is like massively expanded Mm -hmm. in the past couple of decades. And I don't know anyone who's keeping track of it except for a couple of folks who I admire deeply. And Asian-American study, Asian-American literary studies, um, also has diversified and moved in all kinds of directions. Um, my own um, thinking has been lately that if we're really going to take seriously the, the quote-unquote transnational turn, um, then Asia comes flooding back into view. Mm-hmm. And um, that includes, uh, again, not just this sort of sense of Recovery and reclamation of homelands, um, whether in symbolic or material form, um, but really inter asian conflict mm. um, and rivalry and the most prominent side at least for me um, in the 20th century that really happened in the 20th century is Japanese imperialism
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so how do you how do you deal with that um, and how do you not you know just sort of re-energize historical animosities, um, but also reckoning with the real serious consequences that have happened. Um, and you know, this is already obvious in some of the Korean American work on comfort women, um, Filipino American World War II novels that talk about the Japanese occupation. Um, but it's not to say that then we should single Japanese empire out from everything else. Um, there's lots of rivalries, there's lots of conflicts, and the the transnational connections between Asians in the U.S. and whatever is happening in different parts of Asia, I think are always going to be complex and ambivalent.
0: Well, uh, Joe, we've taken up a lot of your time. Are you working on any new research now? Well, that's kind
1: of what I've been thinking about lately. Um, I, I feel like almost having to start over in terms of um, primary reading, just because it sort of reshaped attention to how do these texts, um, you
0: know, deal with this transnational question. Is it similar uh, text or a similar archive, or are you going back to African American now?
1: No, <laughs> would be. Well, at least one idea of the project is Asian American. Although <laughs> I, um, I, recently gave a paper on Young mm-hmm. Kong's East Goes West. Mm-hmm and tried to deal with the representation of African-American characters in that mm-hmm. um, novel. And so, yeah, I kind of get pushed. <laughs> starting to get reinterested in that moment again in African-American um, history, particularly in its uh, in- international context. Um, but for the most part, I think this is at least the way I'm envisioning it now. It's going to be an Asian-American project. Um, I also have been toying with the idea of a kind of less academically oriented, um, more essayistic mm. series of um, reflections on contemporary gay Asian American literature, because mm-hmm. uh, there's quite a bit of it, um, not a whole lot written about it, and uh, I think it's, it's um, worth thinking about, though I'll, although I don't necessarily want to do it through the sort of hardcore academic frames that we've become accustomed to.
0: Great. Well, uh, thank you so much for for being on the show today. Thanks for sharing your work uh, with this audience. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening to my interview with Martin Joseph Ponce on his book, Beyond the Nation. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for books for this podcast, please send me a message on the New Books and Asian American Studies Facebook page. See you next time.